Hi, everyone. It's September 3rd. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Our guest today is Massimo Tabaton, professor at the University of Genova, Italy. Hello. Hello. Around the room, we have Fidel Santa Maria. Hi. Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. Me, I'm Salma Karashi. We have Charlie Wilson. Hello. And George Perry. Hello. Thanks for being here, everyone. So Alzheimer's disease has been described primarily based on its histopathology and clinical presentation. Can you briefly describe the hallmarks of both contrasted with normal age-related dementia? There is not uh, actually a normal aging of the brain. The, in the brain, uh, invariable, uh, there is a pathological aging of the brain with a normal mental status. And up to a, a certain threshold that... Uh, of course, become more, this threshold uh, more low with, uh, with the increasing age. Uh, for instance, I mean, uh, uh, at uh, 100 of age, the people that are mentally normal are an exception, are not normal. Normal people, they develop uh, uh, mental deterioration as that's the same characteristic of Alzheimer's disease. So if we were to take a section of a so-called normally aged brain and a, an Alzheimer's patient brain, what would be the distinguishing hallmarks? The distinction uh, is the alteration of neurons, the so-called neurofibrillary tangles that are prevalent in an Alzheimer's disease and diffuse to the old uh, cerebral cortex and are limited in normal aging instead in uh, the mesial temporal lobe. This is the fact. This is why normal, normal aging, age, uh, elderly people have uh, may have memory changes, but not uh, alteration of other mental function, and they uh, have a normal activity because the other function, other function, are preserved. So let's get to the amyloid hypothesis of Alzheimer's, which is, um, it's been supported by over a decade of research at this point. Can you just summarize the main findings there? Um, and In favor of this hypothesis. Right, and, and, and how they point to amyloids as a causative agent in, in Alzheimer's? The main clues in favor of amyloid hypothesis, the main one was the discovery that uh, the precursor of beta amyloid, the so-called ATP, the gene is located in chromosome 21, and all such was known that all uh, subjects uh, with Down syndrome, they develop uh, an Alzheimer's Alzheimer changes, all the Down people, Down syndrome people at... Uh, around 40 of age. This one, the first one. The second one, strong clue, was the discovery that all the gene mutation causing uh, familial Alzheimer's disease, uh, early onset familial Alzheimer's disease, they produce uh, alteration of the processing of APP, of the precursor protein, vitamin, inducing then uh, an, uh, overproduction of this is the second. And uh, that APP, the precursor of A-beta, mutated the cause of the Alzheimer's disease. 
this is the second strong clues in favor of the amyloid hypothesis. Uh, well, um, I have a question regarding uh, cholesterol and how it links to Alzheimer's because uh, you could say that yes, is APP the one that is changing and therefore is causing is the causal effect for the aggregation of of plaques, but it could be a change in cholesterol homeostasis in the brain. That, that we know happens, that for some reason, I mean, keeps APP more on the membrane or keeps less APP on the membrane, changes the dynamics, the fluid dynamics in all neurons. So, Fidel, what is the connection between cholesterol and... So, high cholesterol, even at mid-age, is a high correlator with a, a onset of Alzheimer's disease. And if you look at a cholesterol, um, cholesterol is high depending on the stage of Alzheimer's. So incipient, medium, and advanced will have, if I remember correctly, higher concentrations of cholesterol in the brain. So then this, this protein, APP, is inserted in the membrane. So that makes me wonder, I mean, I come from a more biophysical aspect, that these membranes are moving, uh, these proteins are moving on the membrane. The more cholesterol might mean that they are not recycled that often, and therefore they are more prone to some kind of mistake, right? And degrade there, and therefore that causes. Uh, I mean, that's just my hypothesis. I don't know what you think. The issue between cholesterol, the link between cholesterol and Alzheimer's disease, is completely confused mm -hmm. because uh, if you believe to the um, transgenic mice that uh, with high cholesterol diet they develop more amyloid. So in favor to the fact that high cholesterol, Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Instead, there are other um, data showing that uh, low, lowering the cholesterol, there is uh, uh, an increase of uh, A-beta mm -hmm. through the Saladin-1 and something like that. Anyhow, it's uh, quite, still quite confused. Mm -hmm. uh, in vitro, um, if the high cholesterol makes uh, more uh, valuable APP to the beta secretase mm -hmm. mostly and secondly to the gamma secretase at the level of the membrane raft, as you mm -hmm. said, favoring probably the transport of APP to the vesicle up to there. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's still confused. So are, are there other uh, uh, downstream signaling pathways from APP? Is it only... It's only A? I mean, is it really uh, only an amyloid uh, precursor? Or is there, I mean, there's other... Uh, I, I think this ties into some of the history. I want to get through some of the chronology here. So for the way I understand it is that most of the big neurodegenerative diseases like ALS and Parkinson's and Huntington's, they started to be described basically with gene mapping and genetics that then led to the discovery of biochemical, you know, mechanisms for, for the pathology. Whereas I thought, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that Alzheimer's worked the other way around. They looked at the pathology, they found these plaques and tangles, and they identified a protein, and that's where APP was identified, and that informed then everything that followed. So can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Is that correct to say that that's how, that's sort of the, the way that the yeah, Alzheimer's correct that the way it was discovered. 
That's correct. Also because there is uh, abundant amyloid in the brain. Instead, all the aggregation or aggregates in the other disease uh, are very, you know, the amount uh, was so scarce that it was impossible to sequence, for instance, hunting teams. It is the product of the gene that aggregates in blood, etc. This the the reason. Also, the another another protein, the tau protein was uh, isolated and uh, and then uh, sequenced and also later what were discovered the the gene mutation that caused the other form of dementia non alzheimer dementia that are a type a subtype of uh, frontotemporal dementia and uh, about the app the functional app so far was discovered app was described the gene Eighty-seven, and so far there is not a real good function for APP so the that data was proposed. So and also, out APP uh, uh, full length were all the derivatives, and the A beta itself, also A beta probably the amyloid as a function. So it's been described as having both neurotrophic and neurotoxic functions. Now that's based on. As the a structure of a receptor, ma no one ligand, a good ligand, was found for APP more than uh, 20 so, years then, later. So we don't know the downstream messengers, right, on the cytosolic side? For instance, side. there is this fragment, uh, this uh, um, C-terminal fragment that is called AICD, that is released after the cleavage that produced pitamilite. Like, that was shown uh, to uh, promote uh, transcription uh, through the binding with adapter proteins such as uh, phase 65. Uh, but uh, there are um, other uh, data against this uh, hypothesis. Um, this is the fact that uh, disturbed me. I mean, I believed in the amyloid hypothesis. George does not believe on the amyloid hypothesis. I believe it, but there is something that uh, is not uh, uh, does not make so, um, complete sense uh, in favor of. I would I would say that there is a complete amyloid hypothesis at everything in Alzheimer's disease is due to amyloid. That probably is wrong. It's still. Um, pretty confused the story of Alzheimer's disease. What are the alternatives? Is there an alternative? Well, George? one of the alternatives we proposed is that the amyloid is a reaction to the disease. This is, is not the cause of the disease, closely linked to it. And it's a reactive response that actually has a protective function, and one of those functions could be to reduce oxidative stress. So the, the, to sort of get back to someone's question about the history, it starts like this. You find the deposition of some proteins in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. You isolate those proteins. It's more than one. And not too surprising, uh, there's more than one. And then so each of those proteins becomes a candidate, basically neurotoxin candidate, right? Eventually. And, That's what it eventually And then and the, uh, it boils down to deciding what each one of them's role is, which one is in the cause, which one is in effect, 
cause of what, effect of what, and so on. Sorting out this like complicated chain of causation among these causality and things. understanding what is a linkage of gene really mean? Did genes cause disease? So this is really confusing to your average neuroscientist listening to the Alzheimer's disease debate. It is always very confusing because um, because it sort of always sounds like uh, some protein has to be the pathogen of Alzheimer's disease, and all the others have to be effects of that one somehow. And then there isn't a there isn't there isn't a clear smoking gun piece of evidence that absolutely kills all the others and leaves that one standing. Is that is it still true that there's none or well, I think that most people in Alzheimer's disease want to find most of the dominant trend want to find a single protein and a single cause and a single pathway. Uh, uh, well, that would be nice. I mean, it would me, be. It would be nice, and that's certainly a good way to do experiments because it's you know provides hypotheses and they're testable. We did hypothesis along those lines, and we came up based on them with data that didn't support it. And well, one of the things is. If you see Dennis Elko outlines, he shows the amyloid coming here and it leads to these downstream events. And oxidative stress is being near the bottom. I see. So it is a downstream event. And his sequence. And his sequence. But our observations are that it's up here. In fact, it's either the same time or slightly before. Certainly. And that's what other people have found. And when you do those experiments in vitro, you find the amyloid reduces oxidative stress. You don't find it increases. It acts as an antioxidant. So I guess the first step in sorting this out is to make sure you know the names of all the players, the oxidative stress and tau and uh, amyloid and so on. Do you think that a complete list of those is, is... Available now, and the question is just how to uh, sort out the even even that issue. There's a new player that was just introduced, in fact, for us at the neuropathology meeting this this summer. Rudy Tansy presented the idea that amyloid beta was an antibacterial, huh. and that is a totally new concept to my knowledge. The idea that bacteria were involved in the disease that has been mentioned, but the data has always been even weaker than some of the squashy things that moss moss often <laughs> It would be a little bit below squash, squashy. But this data was actually quite interesting. And uh, so if that holds out, there's new elements still that could be added to the puzzle. So it sounds like that one is, is kind of uh, just beginning to, to show up on people's radar. What are the main ones that everybody agrees on? Uh, in fact, um, inflammatory responses, uh, cholesterol or lipid transport, apolipoproteins. There's going to be a new study that may have come out that talks about APOJ. Was that published in Nature Medicine? There's going to be two papers doing linkage studies throughout the genome that show that the only linkage is on, on two lipoproteins. Um, Blood-brain barrier breakdown, brain hypoperfusion, metabolic abnormalities, oxidative stress, metal homeostasis. These all ultimately affect APP and amyloid. This is the idea. Is that there's um, so there's two different. Then this relates to, to um, how to order them then in the chain of causation. Well, that's what everybody's trying. So there are to transcription do. factors too, right? There's some transcription factors that are changed or not. 
Well, one of the cleavage products is actually a transcription factor. Yeah, yeah, ICD. So some of this sounds to me like, it's the, the, I mean, the other possibility is looking for a, a, a causal chain is linear may be part of the problem. I mean, if you have uh, kind of auto-regulatory loops, right, that the the disruption in the loop, the self, the auto-regulation of the loop could, could be disrupted from multiple things and multiple things come first or come later. And it's not necessarily a, a single linchpin. What you're, what you're mentioning is most of the type of things that Mark Smith and I write about, about the causality and the finding to have to find a single evil thing. We compare it to exorcism, religious, <laughs> uh, religion. Uh, wow, you're against feed-forward causation. <laughs> you've got names. But it, it is nice if... If you know if causality is in a simple feed forward organization, these are nice if they're simple because it makes it, it makes it a lot easier to do experiments and interpret them. So, are we pretty? I mean, it sounds like you're really sure that it's not going to turn out to be simple and linear like that. I think it's unlikely. He thinks it is likely. No, I think uh, I said before. I think it's not likely that. Uh, Amyloid is the only cause of the disease. There is a, um, probably a, is a center of many pathological events that produce this accumulation of a beta, but is not uh, uh, always this, the, the main, the early, the main um, cause of the disease can be the effect of some, for instance, oxidative stress, as I show you, uh, cause an increase of a beta, of a beta amyloid production. So can be... So things can become, yes. start feeding back on themselves. Of course, it's the molecule that is at the center. And also because, as George said, most of the people now... Uh, analyze the uh, APP processing, the beta production, and so come out uh, that is uh, altered as uh, effect of different uh, pathological uh, processes. So it's difficult to understand and to analyze the, the chicken and the egg. So but there, I mean, from a treatment, the reason that it's so great to find a single thing is from a treatment point of view, right? Because then now you have a single target. Of course. So there, um, if it doesn't all start with one molecule that can become your target, there might be a bottleneck or a final common pathway somewhere where it all boils down to one molecule downstream somewhere mm -hmm. uh, that can become a therapeutic target. I mean, I just don't want to give up on the idea... Of, of uh, finding something like that that becomes the but linchpin for... People have removed the amyloid from people's brain with the vaccine. Ah. The vaccine approach for amyloid actually worked. The people, the vaccine removed large amounts of amyloid. There's no clinical benefit to these patients. Oh, really? Mm. There was a, a trial that was blocked because of uh, autoimmunity that caused... Uh, Encephalitis, autoimmune encephalitis, more than 15 died. These patients that were uh, uh, mild Alzheimer's disease were treated with immunization. Anyhow, the other patient then was stopped, the immunization. I don't remember 
how many boosts of uh, vaccine of uh, the tide was then, but um, at least for one year. And then there were follow-up for the, up to now, uh, was published the paper that uh, the patients in which the amyloid was removed and was uh, demonstrated analyzing the brain and then with the PIB binding, that is the PET with this leg and it's called a Pittsburgh compound. There was a big removal of amyloid, but the, patient, the level of mini-mental score at the end were the same as the non-treated patients. So no clinical effect. And just to go back to the uh, cholesterol story, what about the treatment with statins? The statins were not, were not effective on treatment of Alzheimer's disease, but on the other way, the statin, epidemiologically, they, there is statistical difference in that uh, the people that take statin, they had less Alzheimer's disease. So this is the, the, same, the same story as the estrogen in the women. I believe that, uh, and also the anti-amyloid treatment uh, cannot be ever a treatment, mm. can be just a prevention of yes. the disease. So it seems like That's my, my thought. So the, the fact that does not work, the immunization or the fact that the removal of amyloid in the patients uh, does not mean that uh, uh, one work as a preventive therapist. So it... Right, because presumably the amyloid has killed some neurons or something like that, and the symptoms at this moment are the result of that, not of the amyloid's presence. Is that... I mean, there's no relationship between neuronal death and... So that's my question. Where's the link between the the hallmarks, I guess, are synaptic loss and membrane pores, and uh, there there are a couple of steps there, and none of that... They're extremely weak. Yeah, because in all of the above, even the synaptic changes, which many of us would like to think are really keenly demonstrated, they're demonstrated by synaptophysis, and there's very few studies that actually looked at real synapses, just a couple, and they've done very well, just a couple. (laughs) And and neuronal loss, almost none of the studies have ever shown neuronal loss to highly correlate with dementia, correct? That's just at the late stages, right? Massive neuronal loss is only in the late stages of it's, Alzheimer's. It's not, there is not the massive neuronal uh-huh. loss in Alzheimer's. This there is a, probably the massive uh, alteration of the synaptic. Uh-huh. The part that, we, that has not been demonstrated so well because most people don't want to reconstruct the brain and come right. with synapses. I mean, there's only been a couple studies from the University yeah. of Kentucky and probably still... Yes. Right? All the rest are synaptophysic, which are not equivalent mm-hmm. to synaptophysic. Now, in Alzheimer's disease, there is not a massive There is a massive, right? There is a reduction of the large neurons, cortical right. neurons, in favor of so the reduction. Yeah, and it's a variable number. Some people have... There is a massive neuron loss in some frontotemporal dementia. Okay, that's not probably that's what I'm thinking. Uh, not in Alzheimer's disease. Because there is no plot that shows the maximum LTP against uh, accumulation of beta-amyloid, right? Or is there, there is? Selk, there were some studies that Selka did on the oligomeric amyloid. Yeah, there is, a, yes. There is. Okay. Correlation uh, between uh, 
LTP and all, um, the oligomers of uh, beta amyloid. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Salco has been a major proponent of the linear path. That's, I mean, that the linear hypothesis was originated by John Hardy, and if you see John Hardy just got in the Royal Society announced this month, and that announcement, he doesn't even mention he ever worked on amyloid. But in all of those views, the idea is that that at some point, either synaptic connections get rearranged wrong, or synaptic connections are lost. Is yes. That, that so are the ideas. The actual evidence is lost. So if you look at the tissue, it looks kind of like a storage disease. And you have all of this like built-up stuff that's being stored. Isn't in that adults. interesting? That's what it probably even, um, uh, what do you call the disease that people have been looking at? Neiman-Pick disease mm. has a lot of similarities. That's a cholesterol storage yeah. disease. Uh, it has tau accumulation. doesn't have amyloid accumulations, correct? Not tangles. Yeah, just tangles. So in these in this kind of disease, I mean, what what goes wrong? The neurons are still alive, and, some and they're still storing things. But something must be wrong with their function. Is there is there ideas about what actually goes? You know, the final thing that finally causes the brain not to work right has to be something about the neurons or their connections or something. That are uh, that is the. For sure, the alteration of the LTP, long-term potentiation, caused by amyloid, beta-amyloid. The alteration uh, of the neural function caused by intracellular accumulation of uh, tau, tau protein. The fact that the microtubules are lost so that due would alter the, axonal transport right, due to the tau uh, alteration, uh, alpha synuclein also uh, Minor the protein of Parkinson's disease uh, aggregates uh, and is um, important for the functioning of synapse. Synapse. So there are a lot of uh, a lot of candidates for that. Lot of reason uh, why the the, the neurons uh, they don't work. There is not a single mechanism. So sporadic AD, uh, Alzheimer's disease and familial Alzheimer's disease, are they the same syndrome? Because they have different... I mean, the, the end result, as far as amyloid is concerned, looks the same, but they have very different phenotype, origins. The phenotype is different. clinical phenotype. Right, the earlier onset. The aggressive form of familial Alzheimer's disease caused by gene mutation of presenilin 1 mostly, they so have a different, completely different phenotype. So is that is there a more distinct clue as to what is actually happening neuronally in that syndrome, which may For be instance, more For uh, instance, a lot of uh, these patients, they start not with dementia, but with the cerebellar syndrome, with the paraparesis, or with epilepsy, not with dementia. But at the level of the tissue, do we have any good characterization? There is an incredible amount of amyloid and also an incredible amount of neuropavillary tangles. So there is a, um, uh, an amount of uh, uh, the main alteration 
by far uh, higher than sporadic Alzheimer's disease. And also in other uh, diffusely in uh, all the brain, not only in cerebral cortex, that's why, and also in the cerebellum. Oh, so some of the differences in symptoms make sense in terms of the distribution of the amyloid. So that's another clue in favor of amyloid as the like, sort of kind of final common path of all the pathology. It, this is completely different from Huntington and Huntington's disease, where there is no distributional difference in Huntington across the brain. Places that degenerate aren't any different from the places that don't degenerate. It's not true here, though. Here you can predict from looking at where the amyloid is, where the problems are. Is that it's associated with areas that are problems. Causality is the issue. Right, because the cells could die because there's too much amyloid. It's just like, it's, accumul- it's like a pressure, right? They, you have so much. So you're thinking that, that the symptoms are caused by actual... I'm just stating the hypothesis. <laughs> so the physical amount, the yeah. physical amount of protein is actually extremely small. Mm-hmm. Even though the stain makes it look like it's all over the place, it's actually a very small amount of protein. So it isn't that the cells are just getting jammed full of something and that's what's happening. No, that's true in systemic amyloidosis. When you have the spleen or other organs, you actually develop enough amyloid that the organ becomes uh, physically constricted. And that's why it fails. This seems like one of the key points of your work is that amyloid comes in many flavors. And different flavors of amyloid in different proportions have different, present with different phenotypes. Do you want to say something about that? Yes, there is the amyloid is not just uh, a single molecule uh, in the brain of Alzheimer's patients, but um, a mixture of uh, different um, isoform of beta amyloid. And there are three major peptides, and the composition of the, these uh, three peptides, uh, uh, in our opinion, may dictate the toxicity of the... Because each of them interacts with a different set of... For example, the same, one of uh, the same uh, very similar to what happened in uh, the prion oh, yeah, diseases, right. the sponge so-called, and the past spongiform encephalopathies, in which uh, the confirmation of a prion protein dictate the different uh, topography of the pathology and the clinical phenotype. And was demonstrated by, I don't remember the guy, the Swiss guy, Joker, using, um, I think, in science two years ago, what uh, we proposed, this concept that we talk about uh, myself and Pierluigi Gambetti about uh, a beta strain, was uh, confirmed by this work using transgenic mice, different transgenic uh, uh, amyloid mice, uh, and injecting with different also uh, amyloid um, of uh, from uh, human brain for Alzheimer's patient was shown that the the different uh, the, the development of um, amyloid deposition. Uh, is increased when the same type uh, of amyloid is injected in the mice and on from a different, uh, from, 
from different minds or from the brain. So they, the same conformation, the same mixture of amyloid also favor the development and the accumulation of beta amyloid. He's talking about the transference of sequence. It isn't just prions anymore. And there's that recent uh, commentary from Maguzi in Nature. Maybe you saw this in the last uh, couple weeks. He suggested the same thing, because I guess it was Susan Lindquist, other people saying that all of the amyloids share that same sequence transition, you know, the thing that Dermon presented, where you have an imprinting. The same as for tau, was demonstrated that injecting tau, mm -hmm. tau injected in the brain, is uh, taken inside the neurons and favored uh, in the tau, the, the neurofibrillary degeneration pathology in these mice that uh, without injection they do not develop and only they are prone because overexpress human tau, but not at the level to develop uh, tauopathy. That means uh, neurofibrillary degeneration. It's not, a it's not a surprising feature because most polymer formations in cells are limited by nucleation steps. They're the rate limiting step is getting that first nuclei. So it's not a surprising feature, but it's now been demonstrated. Yeah, the nucleation uh, effect is uh, the basis of uh, most of the neurodegenerative disease. And just a uh, comment uh, I remember that uh, many years ago, the guy that died uh, in December. Mandy Burr? No. No. Ah, proposed in the 70, more than 30 years ago, this hypothesis that all neurodegenerative disease got the Nobel Prize in the 76 for brain disease. It was really genius because more than 40 years ago, proposed the fact that neurodegenerative diseases are the basis uh, is the nucleation of protein. Mm. 40 years ago. And the problem is true. Called it kind of the ICE hypothesis. Yeah. ICE 11 or something. Right. Yeah. There was a Kurt Vonnegut book uh, called Cat's Cradle that was about physicists who discovered a, an ice crystal formation, ICE 9, oh, that would yes. cause ordinary liquid water to freeze in this particular form of ice, geometric form mm. of, of ice. And it causes the end of the world in this. Book because all the person water turns. I was just in the middle of it, Fine. Charlie. Spoilers <laughs> in this podcast. In case you haven't read right. Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut. So that's what Gadisha yeah. is referring to. Yeah. yeah. It's an outstanding book. Huh. So does that does that view change all of our discussion about these causal loops or the direction of causality? I mean, is it really just another Pathway, or is that process of of how much things comes together the crucial amount is the, some critical mass of regulating that? I mean, does it does it change the way we think of these other pathways, these regulatory pathways? Beside the amyloid hypothesis, I yeah, but in terms of this conformational, mm -hmm. so it's a mechanism for creating more stuff, right, from other conformational things, rather than some biochemical mm -hmm. pathway that this causes this protein. We're looking around for the 
thing. It's, it's this. So, is that regulated differently? I mean, does it make it think differently about if that really hypothesis is the key thing that gets out of control? Is it make us, you know, how is it kept in control normally? Or uh, a good example would be microtubule formation, I guess, because that's a kind of very common nucleation event. And that's what I told Stan Krusner, but she before he won the Nobel Prize, is what's different than a, what is a prion different, how is a prion different than a microtubule? It requires nucleation. It's almost never going to happen by itself, and you put something there and you get it. He didn't want to have that conversation, though. Well, I think so. The I don't know, it, but I know there's quite a bit known about how microtubules do it, and of course it is really super regulated. Very important. It's and special. It's special enough, I think. Same as it is for microfilament. There are thousands of proteins, and uh, you might think of these diseases as just being a special case. And also, if you look back in older literature from Gunther Stant from the 60s, he was speculating about how there wasn't enough information in cells to really determine a cell, but there had to be a lot more redundancy in the system. And this provides that redundancy. You have the code, you have post-translation modification, and you have multiple shapes. And those shapes, I think we've been, the reductionism of the central dogma of biology, which has moved us ahead, in a lot of ways also has moved us back, where people think that all the information moves from uh, uh, DNA. I mean, I'm teaching Bio 1 with David Sensman, and I saw DNA as the central information with you, and that always bugs me. Because there's a lot more information when you know the central unit of life is a cell. And there's a lot more information than DNA in the cells. And that's what this is about. It's about pre-existing molecules that are improbable to form the first time. I want to say something. I, I, before, I don't know if we're going to finish now, but um, I went to a talk in which somebody was asking how to detect like the, um, the soluble part of these proteins, right? Um, and that's an issue in Alzheimer's, right? I mean, the, the traditional... was the first person to detect the sign. Well, no, but I, but I mean in, in terms of diagnostics, right? I mean, okay. the, the, you cannot do that, right? You have to open this up the brain. This something I was worried about, too, you know? Could we look at the brain and... So, the the, it turns out, um, I want to bring this up because it's in my field a little bit, so now people are taking a little bit of uh, CSF and uh, 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 A-beta is there so because it goes to the blood or crosses the barrier and it's there. And it, but it's in minute quantities, so you can use fluorescence correlation spectroscopy, which we have here, uh, to detect. Uh, in, we're talking about one particle in... Uh, and we're talking about five nanomolar concentrations or less, right? And you can use that technique to actually not kill the patient and uh, determine if they have increased uh, content. But do we know that it correlates to... No, no, well, I mean, they have done these studies. I mean, these studies are re really recent. I mean, they're like the first one that I found is 2006. You're talking about Brad Hyman's imaging study? I've heard this, this is a group in Germany and another in Sweden. I think the German is... Uh, I, I even wrote it down, Wilbolt's group in Germany. And they have published like two or three papers. And there is another one in, in uh, Sweden. That's the That was the paper that I read first... I don't remember the name. Uh, so how, does it work? 
how does it work? How do you? Uh, I don't remember how they label particular it. So basically, you have a drop of CSF, and these molecules. I mean, if you are able to label them fluorescently, or out of, uh, you can detect their out of lenses, I guess. Uh, you can um, use a two-photon microscope to look at a very small volume, and then these molecules are going to be going in and out. But in this and thing, out of what? In and out of the observation volume. And doing some analysis of the fluctuation in, of the fluorescence trace, you can determine the, the number of molecules in that volume, and therefore you can determine the concentration, the true concentration of molecules. And their mobility, you have to know their mobility. Yeah, well, that, that has, that's an aside, and uh, I think uh, these groups are not interested in their diffusion coefficient. Well, uh, I was just thinking, you could just certainly tell what's, probably what's dissolved and what is aggregated. Other, other groups working on tubuling, for example, and tubuling... Um, um, how tubuling assembles, uh, you can look at the different diffusion uh, modes, right, when it is a monomer or a, mo uh, a, a polymer, right, and then the diffusion coefficient changes, so you can see when it gets um, aggregated or, or disassembled, right? So you can see that if, if it is a, a single molecule or multiple, as, as long as you do the control. So the key thing is to get a fluorescent label on the molecule yeah. of interest. Yeah, exactly. But I think there, I mean, there are, right? Um, in a, like if in they the confirm that uh, A beta is decreased? No, I think they, they, they show that there is increase in A beta. They're just like monitoring patients with different in levels the CSF, of uh, In the CSF. The yeah. CSF, many studies Because uh, by ELISA, A beta 42 is decreased oh, in okay. the CSF. I can send you the references, and uh, I, I think it's interesting. Immunochemically, mm -hmm. with uh, the ELISA, mm -hmm. is decreased. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the diagnostic, uh, or uh, you know, also in the, this condition is that is called myconative impairment, mm -hmm. uh, that can evolve into Alzheimer's disease, or can be stable, and uh, they find that is correlated with the conversion in Alzheimer's disease of these uh, MCI, myconic impairment patients, the low level huh. in the CSF or beta 42, huh. because the shift mm -hmm. into the brain is, is um, to the reason of the decrease. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, the hyperphosphorylated tau, in particular one epitope 181, is increased uh, in the CSF. Yeah. Okay. So I don't... I don't know. I can send I you mean, the, this. I mean, I, I stumbled upon this because I was doing this technique and then I that's where I, I got interested in the field. Um, well, thank you, Massimo Tabaton, for being with us. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. This is the Neuroscientist Talk Show.